Welcome to A Path Home. This is the podcast where we demystify the tasks related to after-death care through hearing stories from people who have cared for their own deceased loved ones at home. I'm your host, Sarah Cruz. I'm the director of Heartland Prairie Cemetery, a home funeral guide, death educator, and a member of the National Home Funeral Alliance. Lauren Sample is a new listener to A Path Home. Upon discovering the podcast, she sent me an email saying, We had a home funeral for our daughter Nora, nicknamed Bird, and I often woke her up asking, How's my precious bird? I just opened the podcast for the first time and saw the episode with that title. I'm so moved that my song Precious Bird spoke to Lauren in that moment and that she was willing to share her bird with all of us. Nora died seven years ago. You'll hear the emotion in Lauren's voice as she recounts the many final acts of love the family provided to Nora. I just want to acknowledge the reality that we always carry grief with us and express again how grateful I am to all the people who have shared their deeply felt personal stories with us here on A Path Home. We start our conversation hearing a little bit about Nora. So yeah, if you could just fill us in on Nora, your sweet bird. Yeah, yeah. So Nora was born in 2000. And we found out shortly before my due date that she had a condition called trisomy 18, which means that she had a third 18th chromosome. And we were told that she would not survive and that she would probably be stillborn. But if she wasn't, that she might live for minutes or hours, um, days if we were lucky was the way that they put it. And we had been planning a home birth and decided to continue with that um, plan. And as we prepared for the birth of this baby that we'd been, you know, that we'd been so eagerly anticipating, I had older children who were two and five at the time. And um, we had talked about all the things that, you know, every single night we would talk about all the things that we'd do with the new baby. We would dress the baby and hold the baby and sing to the baby and rock the baby and read to the baby and all the things that we would do with this new baby. Her siblings were so excited. Yes. Audrey and Nat, they were so excited about this baby. So we got this news and that night, as they did every single night, I remember I was holding Audrey in my arms. She was two at the time. You know, she said, let's talk about the baby, mama. What will we do with the baby? There's my almost three-year-old. And I still remember her little soft brown hair just under my face and me thinking like, how do I, we've done this every night for almost nine months. We've talked about this every night. Like, what am I going to tell them? What are we going to do with this baby? You know, how do I, how do I shift into this? We knew we were having the baby at home. So I just like all of a sudden started saying, we're going to rock the baby and we'll sing to the baby and we'll dress the baby. And as I started saying all the things that I'd said every other night before that, and I didn't know anything about home funerals. As I started saying all the things that I'd said before, I became more confident that like we could, we would do those things. You know, we, we would do them. So she led me to that. She wasn't even three and she, she led me to that. Right. So I, I didn't know what we would do after those few, you know, few moments after she passed. So I started thinking more about it in the days after, you know, my due date was just weeks away. And 
for whatever reason, I could write a whole book on the the messages that I that came through Nora as I was pregnant, that there was something like up or different about this baby. And I didn't know what, but I had a feeling that she was preparing me for something huge. I didn't even know how to put it into words. And I hadn't talked to anybody about it because it sounded a little crazy. But I just knew. I knew that this baby was preparing me for something really, really big. And so when we got the news, I was like, oh, okay. That's the big. Right. That's the big is that this is all we have. This time is all we have. And as I started to think about what would it be like to let go of a child? And I had peace around her dying. What I didn't have peace around was what would happen to her body? All I knew was that strangers take dead people. And all I could think about was that she was going, somebody was like a stranger was going to come into our house and put her in a plastic bag and zip her up and carry her away from me when she was what, a minute's old, you know, an hour old. I didn't know what happened. So that was the part I couldn't wrap my head around. And I talked to my sister about it and she, my sister, Lisa, bless her, heard my you know, my anguish over this. And she started making phone calls and she found a funeral director who said that he was willing to come to her house. We're in New York state where there are a lot of restrictions around, around body possession, basically after death. And she found a a funeral director who said he was willing to come to our house where a funeral director has to remove a person from the place of death. And so he would come to our house and he would step into our house and he would take her from my arms And then he would step back out and then I could step over the threshold and take her back. And then I could ride in their car and then I could take care of her at the funeral home. And then we could have things happen as quickly as possible so that I could spend as much time with her as possible. And my heart just opened up for this person who was willing to do all these things. And then fast forward, Nora didn't die. She lived and she had a really, really fabulous, fabulous, wonderful life. And she lived to be 15 years old with a condition that um, still sometimes gets called incompatible with life. And it's not. Oh, my gosh. And many kids with trisomy 18 do survive, particularly if they get if they get medical care that would be given to other children. And so she had a really great life. Um, She was just our, you know, shining star, bright light. And we knew that someday she would pass before Mm -hmm. us. She had heart condition. She had some lung issues and we knew that, um, that her time would be shorter than ours. And so we still knew that, that at some point she would pass, but in the meantime, we were just going to love her up every day and have a really, um, Oh my gosh. I would just have a really good life. What were her favorite things about her life? Uh, she absolutely loved music and kind of made her own. Um, you know, she was what might be called nonverbal, but she was not non-communicative. She absolutely communicated everything, and that was mostly joy and connection. Mm. She was never, she was never mad, never disappointed, anything like that. She was just happy. And um, she loved her siblings, loved her aid at school. She had the same aid for her whole life. She loved water and uh, she loved our dog. You know, she just, uh, she loved holding hands. Was she mobile? 
So she was very mobile when she was on the ground. Um, She could scoot around and, you know, um, she'd sit up and sort of jump up and down and, you know, sort of bounce up and down in place and move around the room that way. And, um, you know, she'd roll to get to what she wanted. If my son was lying on the couch reading and she was on the on the floor, she'd, you know, make her way over to him and just, you know, gaze adoringly at him and hold his hand while he read a book or something. So she used her wheelchair to get around. It's a great tool, you know, wasn't restrictive for her. It was a, it was a wonderful resource. And, um, you know, some of the kids, friends, their little ones, toddlers and stuff like to sit on her lap and ride around in the wheelchair. And um, Mm. the neighbor kids love to, you know, help get her off the bus and stuff like that. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. So as she approached her dying time, were there um, obvious indicators for you as a family that this was starting to happen? Yeah, as she got older, her um, her heart and lungs got worse and she was just, you know, she was slowing down and each respiratory infection took more of a toll on her. She started needing oxygen. She started needing CPAP support at night. And um, we, you know, we knew her time was winding down. And the way I described it in her obituary and the way I think about it is that she lived a beautiful arc of a life. You know, she kind of, she, she, you know, had this wonderful, rich, younger life. And then she kind of got old, you know, she got older and slowed down and started kind of going Mm. downhill. And, and when it was her time, she passed, you know, she had the kind of arc of life that Mm -hmm. people have when they have a really good long life. It's just that hers was shorter. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so we knew, we knew it was coming. You sent me a picture of the family all gathered around her on the bed. So she died at home. She was born at home and she died at home as well. She did. And her dying at home is actually a significant part of her story. She was in the hospital with the flu and we were hoping to get her stable to bring her home. Our goal, you know, she was hospitalized a handful of times in her life. And our goal was always to care for her at home with whatever supports we needed if possible. So she, she was in the hospital with the flu and I was quite sure that this was the last respiratory infection, that she was not going to make it off of this, the CPAP, which was on her face. And she needed to be on it 24 seven at that point. And I knew that it was, that it was either this respiratory infection or the next one that would take her. And she was just, she wasn't going to make it. And I wanted to bring her home. And I needed the rest of the family to understand that it was time to bring her home. She didn't like the CPAP. She certainly didn't want to be on it 24-7. And you can't live on one of those things. At some point, skin starts to break down. And so that would be painful. And it wasn't it wasn't life-saving. It was life-extending at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted mm-hmm. to bring her home. And we had a fabulous palliative care doc who was prepared to help have the conversation with the family. But the last day in the hospital, my daughter, Audrey, and I had been in the hallway and there'd been a family that we'd seen visiting a child there over the days that Nora was there. And then that day we saw the family next to a large silver, what looked like a very, very big bread box on a gurney in the hallway. And they were weeping over this box. And she asked me what it was as they took it onto the elevator. And it was their child going to court. So the night that that I wanted to bring Nora home, I asked if everybody, um, I wanted everybody to come to the hospital. And uh, and my, my two other children who were 17 and 20 at that point. 
and my husband. And I wanted us all to have a conversation about what was happening because I I was committed to bringing her home, what I wanted everybody on board. I didn't want anybody to feel like we were withdrawing something that would cause her death. So we were having this conversation and my son, Nat, who's 20, felt confident that bringing her home was the right thing to do. My husband, I think, understood it and was certainly sad about it. Audrey was completely resistant. She wanted, she didn't want to bring her home, but she wanted me to promise that um, if she died in the hospital, that she wouldn't go in one of those boxes. Mm. And, you know, we, we'd had home births and we'd homeschooled and we knew that we would have a home funeral someday. We made all sorts of independent decisions, you know, that other people wouldn't make. And she just kept insisting that I could make it happen. Like I couldn't, I couldn't promise her that, right. That Nora would not be taken by strangers in a metal box to a morgue where she would have to wait for a funeral director for whenever they could come. It could be a day. We didn't know how long it would be. Would we wind up with, you know, challenges with the legal system because laws in New York, what kind of delays would there be? And it was that box that made Audrey decide that we needed to bring her home. Once she realized that, like, as <laughs> I've made lots of independent decisions, but this one, I, I couldn't, right? I couldn't do that. Right. So in the middle of this conversation, a nurse came and quietly said, I think, you, I, I think you should go to her now. We had asked them to turn off any monitors so that we couldn't hear what was happening. You know, her things were beeping left and right. Her heart rate would drop periodically. Her oxygen would drop periodically. And the nurse came over and, and told us that. And I said, did something happen? And she said, yes, I think it's happening now. So this was in that moment. I think it's happening now. And this was um, shortly before midnight. My sister Lisa was with us too. And we immediately just got up and went over to the bed. And I just immediately started singing to her and talking to her. And all of us were just loving on her as we were thinking like this, she, this is it. This is happening. And it's just, it's in the hospital. It's not what we planned, but here we are. Here we are. And how do we make the best of it? And as we're doing this, you know, her oxygen's like, it should be in the 90s for people. Her oxygen was like in, in 40s, 30s. So then there's the concern about her dying in transit. Like if you're yeah. bringing her home, yeah. if she's yeah. even going to be able to survive the journey. Yeah. So, you know, in that moment when we went to the bat, it was like, well, I guess we're not bringing her home. I guess we're just like, this is happening right here and we're just going to have to figure it out. And as we were there, I was still very aware that like the this could be coming so quickly and we were just going to lose. We, she wasn't going to be ours anymore. She was going to be the hospitals until we could get her back. And I just all of a sudden stood up and I, I just looked at everybody and I said, I want to take her home. Let's take her home right now. We're going to take her home right now. And there was a nurse in the room and I said, what do we have to do to take her home? And the nurse said, well, you got to sign paperwork. We'll get it for you. And they knew us, you know, and the nurse came in and they, they flew, they just jumped and they came rushing in. They got an, they got an oxygen tank. They got a wheelchair. They got the paperwork. They're literally like shoving things into my hands to sign. And we just scooped her up. And, you know, it was the middle, it was March 16th. It was winter time, cold outside. I sat in the wheelchair. They put her in my arms. My sister, Lisa, went to get her van. Mark, and my husband, and the kids went to drive home. We live um, less than five minutes from the hospital, thank goodness. And mm. the nurse was pushing me through the hallway 
with Nora in my arms. And I just had my face buried down in her hair and I was whispering to her and the nurse leaned over and whispered in my ear, if she passes on the way out, don't tell me. Wow. She said, don't tell me if I know that she's passed, we can't let you leave. Don't tell me. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah. We had good people. And so we got out the door and the nurse hugged me and said, I'm so glad you're going home. You're a family that should be home. And um, got into the car and I just held her in my arms and I didn't buckle in. And in hindsight, I should have buckled in because Lisa drove fast and we kind of slid around the back seat a little bit. It was almost comical. I remember laughing and saying, like, you got to slow down as we're going over the river, like we're sliding around back here. And we got home. And so we were in our bed, you know, less than half an hour after we had been having this conversation. So we came home and we all just piled into our bed. And um, I, you know, I told them at, in the hospital, I said, you know, if we were home, we could all be in the bed. We can't all be in the bed with her here. Like every, you know, friends could come. Like, you know, I've been right. talking about how it would be different at home. And they knew, you know. Um, so yeah. anyway, we all piled into the bed in the middle of the night. You know? Wow. Yeah. I'll bet Nora was so relieved that she was home and just surrounded by all your love in her familiar space. Yeah. On some level, really, really grateful that it happened. Yeah. She had not been, she hadn't been very interactive in the time that she'd been sleeping when we went to have, when we were having our conversation, which we were having in the room with her, by the way, it was, you know, across the room from her. And she had not been very interactive, but when we got home and had her in bed with us, we just started, you know, we were just all telling her how much we loved her and we're somehow it turned into like funny stories. So we were laughing, you know, there was some laughter and sweetness and kind of just telling her her life. You know, I've never doubted who we were as a family, but that night was just it was just incredible it's like this is how we do things like we don't it doesn't matter how other people do things like we can just we can choose how we do things so she wound up living for hours in our bed you know she was it was it's astonishing to me that her oxygen levels were so low and she still lived for hours and so you know we loved on her for quite a while and then um and then everybody got tired So they decided to try to get some sleep. So somebody climbed into her bed. I think Nat was in her bed and Audrey was lying across the bottom of our bed and Mark was lying next to me and Nora was lying across my lap. She was always really small. So she was maybe the size of, even though she was 15, she was maybe the size of like an eight-year-old or something and very thin. So she was lying across my lap and I was just, you know, cradling her. And I just, just held her, you know, at some point, closed my eyes so that I could really, really connect and tune into her. And suddenly there was like this vision of like, it was like what a murmuration of starlings looks look like where they're all like swooping and swirling through the sky. There were all these birds coming in and it was, I knew it wasn't a dream and it was just this vision. I didn't know where it came from or whatever, but it was just this astonishing kind of thing that happened where the sky kept filling up with more and more and more birds. And her nickname was bird. And somehow, and this is not like me. I'm not like all like, you know, um, I don't (laughs) normally have visions, but somehow what came to me is these are like ancestors and they are coming to welcome her and they will take her with them. You know, like she's going to somehow sort of swirl away with them and she will not be alone. 
and we will be okay. I was like, all right, I can do this. And I opened my eyes because I didn't want to fall asleep. I didn't want to fall asleep. And then I did fall asleep. <laughs> so I dozed off for like, a, you know, I, it was really just, I, I just barely dozed off, woke back up and she was still and nothing. She was not breathing. And I felt the sadness that I'd missed it. And then she took a breath. Mm. And then I felt the sadness that my husband had missed it. And I touched him and woke him up and said, she's gone. And he turned and held her, put his arms around her. And then she took one last breath. And then that was it. And we were just, you know, we were just all around her. It was lovely. It couldn't have been, you know, any more beautiful than it was. You know, the crazy car ride was, I feel like it was disruptive as a person was dying. And it was also an act of love. You know? Absolutely. It was entirely necessary too. You yeah. had to have her home. Yeah. And, you know, and if she'd passed in the car, you know, it would have been in my arms trying to get her home and then we would have been able to keep her home. So that's the, that's kind of the story of her passing at that point. Yeah. So you had, by this time, 15 years on. Mm -hmm knew what you were able to do in terms of the law and keeping her at home. And so you knew what to do next, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Did you have to let a funeral director know right away or how did that work? So yes, in New York state, um, we required the services of a funeral director. So um, they need to file the paperwork. They need to get the permit to transport the body. They need to remove the body from the place of death and they need to supervise um, final disposition. Right. But it doesn't have to happen right now. It does now. not have to happen right now. And at some point when Nora was young, some friends discovered home funerals. Somebody had read the book, Allison's Gift, about a child whose family has a home funeral. And a group of people started exploring how to make home funerals a reality for people in our area. So we had identified some home funeral friendly funeral directors who were, you know, we sort of had to tell them what it was and, and ask them to work with us. And we'd had some families who'd had home funerals by then. And so I knew what to do and I knew who to call because we, are, we already had a funeral director who was okay with this. And I knew I didn't have to do anything right away. I knew we had time. we had already picked out a, a natural burial plot. So we did not call the funeral home right away. We did get in touch with her palliative care doc so that he could come and pronounce death later in the mm -hmm. day. Right. And sign the death certificate. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I bathed her fairly shortly after she passed. I mean, probably within an hour or two, I think. Was that something the whole family participated in? No. You and your husband? So Nora needed care throughout her life. So I bathed her every day, bathed her every day of her life. I suppose I think there were days that she didn't get a bath, but, but every time she was bathed. So, so I was used to bathing her. We had a roll in shower with a big bath seat that reclining type bath seat. You know, she was in my arms every day. You know, she was, I would hold her in my arms to feed her, even though she, you know, could be fed in a wheelchair, but she was in arms for 15 years. Like I said, she was small. So we carried her, we held her. She was in arms all the time. I wanted to give her a last bath the way that I always did. I didn't want to bathe her in the bed. So I carried, I undressed her and then carried her body in my arms into the walk-in shower, roll-in shower area. 
and bathed her like I normally would. So this was not unfamiliar. And it was, uh, I just, um, I just soaked up every bit of her body, you know, because I, I, you know, you don't, you, you don't normally touch your child so much for 15 years, but um, I had, I bathed her whole body, her whole life. And this was my last time. So I just kind of uh, luxuriated in um, the sensation of her, to get her skin under my hands and her hair. She had this long, wild, curly hair. Yeah, I was, it was so tender and beautiful. And um, she would sometimes have a seizure after she got out of the shower, like when the, with the temperature change when she got cold. And it was strange to pick her up and not have to worry about that. And there was a little bit of a peace, like, okay, she's, she's okay. She's not going to have a seizure. You know, so I, I brought her back in and put her on her bed and figured that I'd pick out what to dress her in later on. You know, it was one of those things where, like, I knew. I, like, I could change her clothes later. I, you know, I didn't have to make any decisions. I didn't have anything picked up, but it was okay, you know. So yeah. I put her in this you know, little pair of pajamas with a zebra on it. And it had, it said, my favorite letter is Z. And I have lots of Zs, and which just made me laugh. Like she was sleeping. And so it was like this funny moment. And I certainly wasn't going to like have that be her last outfit. And it turned as it turned out, you know, as the days went by, I was like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to disturb her. I could change her, but this is kind of funny. I like this, you know? And so I just, yeah. I just left her in it. Very sweet. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. And I just, you know, I did her hair and, you know, laid her out in her bed and, you know, you know, the kids came in, we kind of put her little stuffed animals around her and later in the day she passed it, I don't know, three in the morning or something like that. So, you know, the time sort of all blurs together. Did you have visitation then in the home, invite friends and folks over to pay their respects or to be with you as a family? Yeah. So that's all, that's kind of a blur too. So she died on a Wednesday, Wednesday, very early morning. And we put the word out and somehow friends just started, you know, gently figuring out what we needed. We decided that we would have people over for some time on Thursday and throughout Wednesday, people started showing up and just like, moving stuff around. Somebody went through pictures, other people cleaned. They just, they just asked me what they could do. And they just started finding like beautiful things from around the house and putting candles here or there. And um, somebody cleared off the fridge and found like all these, maybe they brought them. I don't know. I probably owe people money for things they did. Um, <laughs> um, you know, at some point the refrigerator got filled with pictures of Nora with these little magnetic, um, you know, they look like pushpins, but little magnetic things. And then there was like a, somebody, there was like Italian poetry and somebody made some little principessa and things like that had those sort of sprinkled around the refrigerator and then somebody covered. So Nora's bed was in our room because she, you know, needed care throughout the night and stuff. So she was laid out in her bed and somebody, you know, they cleared off my dresser and covered that with beautiful things and pictures of Nora. They brought some plants in and some candles for a little altar kind of thing by right next to her bed. 
They moved her bed so that there was sort of a path around it. They created a path through the house so that people could come in one door, sort of follow around, circle through, and then out the back door. And like, I just don't even know how it happened. There were just people who were entrusted to figure it out. I love that you have a community around you that just did this. Yeah, It's like almost... As you're describing it, I'm thinking of this magical um, bunch of elves or something that came into your house and like, okay, let's do this. Yeah, for sure. And it wasn't, um, and this wasn't just like home funeral people. Like we have this little community of people who've done education around home, community education around home funeral. But some of these people had never been to a home funeral. Some of these people had never been someplace where they're clearing off a dresser and putting out pictures when there's a dead child next to them. So, you know, my family, my, you know, my sisters, I have four sisters and, you know, my sisters hadn't done this. My sister-in-law and my niece who came into town, they hadn't been in a house with a dead person, much less a dead child, you know, and people just showed up. What I found very helpful was we had a schedule of people, the magical elves, we um, came up with a schedule of people who would, where there would be somebody who would just be in the house through, including throughout the night. So that if any of us needed to get up in the middle of the night and like not be alone, that there could be somebody there for us. So somebody just came and they were just out in the living room. And then at some point we decided we didn't need that anymore and we were okay. But I do remember getting up in the middle of the night and going out into the living room and like, I didn't know who would be out there. I don't know what the schedule was. It was, you know, there was a schedule that I could look at, but I didn't look at it. And I went out and like my friend Bridget was there, you know, like I'm grieving and there's Bridget. So yeah, in so many ways, there, there were just so many people who helped. You know, I thought that I would probably want to keep her home for three days. She passed on Wednesday morning. We had the calling hours on Thursday. The cemetery, I got very distressed because we had originally planned on Friday. And then I got very distressed because it was like, it was too soon. I couldn't let her go. It was too, it was like suddenly clear that it was way too soon to let her go. I was not ready. Neither was anybody else. We were not ready for her to be gone. And um, we just needed more time. So a friend called the cemetery and they couldn't do Saturday and they charged a lot more on the weekend, hundreds of dollars more on the weekend. And Sunday seemed too late. Like, what if she's, you know, what if there are some changes that are unpleasant or concerning or make us feel kind of grossed out? You know, we were a little worried about that. Mm-hmm. Like what happens after mm-hmm. that many days? She passed early Wednesday morning. That's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If we bury her on Sunday, what if when we go to bury her, it's upsetting right. if there are any changes? She's little. I don't know if that would make a difference. And were you using dry yeah, ice? Yeah. So we used, I had Techni ice at home. So we, you know, we were already had that already. Yeah, but it's just an unknown. You just don't know. You just don't know. Quickly, things are going to happen. And what I knew was that if if I couldn't do Saturday, I would rather cover her up and put her in her casket and keep her here until Sunday than let her go too early. So I couldn't do, it was either Friday or Sunday. And it was clear I just couldn't do Friday. Oh, and the other thing is that my friend Ellen, in less than 24 hours, got us a handmade casket um, from a local carpenter. And it came between the two calling hours. So for the second set of calling hours, as people were filing through the house, they went past the casket, which was laid out on a long dresser. And there was a basket of beeswax crayons there and a bunch of paper. And so people could decorate the box. Um, My dad started calling it her cocoon. 
Um, I could decorate mm. her cocoon and write a little note to her and put it that we would read and then put inside with her. So we decided on Sunday and there were some slight changes. You know, her eyes changed a little bit. Her nose got sharper looking. I kind of laughed at the idea that like she'd always had this cute little, you know, kind of little tiny turned up nose. And as her skin settled a little bit, she had this much sharper looking nose. And you're like, what is like, what's up with that? That's not her nose. <laughs> and but it didn't, it was fine. You know, the kids were okay with it. Mark was okay with that. Her eyes never completely closed when she was alive. Even when she was sleeping, her eyes would be open just the tiniest bit. So it actually would have been sort of weird if her eyes had been completely closed. So like, it was okay that her eyes were, um, you know, were still a little bit open. The night before we were going to bury her Saturday night, we kind of gathered around her. You know, we knew it was the last night that we'd all go to bed and have her there with us in the house. And while we were gathered around her, my son, Matt, suddenly said, as we're standing next to her twin size bed, could we move her over so I can lie down next to her? Mm. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about that, but we'd all laid down in her bed with her many times, you know, to read with her or just hang out with her or whatever. And so we did, we shifted her over, you know, we said, of course, and he climbed in next to her and just, just snuggled in next to her and spent some time there. And then Mark did and Audrey did. And, and then I did. And I had spent every night in the hospital with her. I always slept in bed with her in the hospital and I knew I wasn't supposed to, but I did it anyway. And the nurses didn't care, you know, just turned blind eye to (laughs) to it. (laughs) And so I spent the night with her, her last night, I spent the night in bed with her and kind of arranged her, you know, whenever I would sleep next to her other times, I would always have my head nestled against her head. And so I sort of arranged her hair so that I could feel her hair kind of on the pillow, but not her head, you know, I sort of experimented with like, where does it feel comfortable? And And she's quite cold. She was cold. Yeah. And so I just sort of put her head, her hair up against the pillow and put my head so that her hair was against my cheek, but not her head. And then I put my hand over her the way that I always would, but I put her blanket between her hands and, and my hand so that if I woke up in the night, it wouldn't be this cold hand. I could feel it if I wanted to, but it wouldn't be, um, you know, I could put it under the blanket if I wanted to. Um, mm-hmm. Like there were so many opportunities throughout these days to make those choices, you know, to have these additional moments or additional connections or acts of love. So I spent the night with her. And then in the morning, Mark and the kids went to church and I'm not really a churchgoer. So I had a friend come over who had lost a child who had the same disorder. And so my friend Carol came over and she kind of held space with Nora because I didn't want Nora to be alone. And so Carol held space with Nora and kind of sang to her and chanted and drummed and she had whatever she was doing in there with Nora while I got her casket ready, I put, you know, flowers in and I put her, her comforter in and I, you know, put in the notes from people and um, the kids and I had decorated the lid at the casket the day before they'd finished decorating the casket and I had done the lid. And, and so we kind of got everything ready for her to go into the casket because she was still in her bed at this point. And then when they came home, the kids decided, you know, what else they might want to put in with her we needed to bring her from the back room through sort of a tight angle into the, to lay her down in her casket. And of course, you know, I'd done 
home funeral guide training and, and I knew how to carry body. And I knew that sometimes some fluids can leak a little bit from the mouth or something like that. So I had these ideas about how we all needed to carry her. And Mark said, no, he wanted to pick her up in his arms and carry her. And he was dressed for the cemetery and he had a, a white shirt, a dress shirt. And I told him he shouldn't do that. You know, that I didn't really want to go into it, but there might be some things that could happen that, you know, could be distressing or something. And he said, I've always carried her. She's my girl. I'm going to carry her. And I said this. So then I told him, you know, what could happen? And I said, why don't I get a towel or something, put it against your shirt? He said, no, I'll change my shirt. And it was this moment where, again, I was like, yeah, this is who we are. You know, like he's a dad, he's always carried her and he's going to carry her against his body as he always has and lay her down. Like our experience of her was so physical throughout her whole life, you know, that we needed that we needed the, the transition time away from physically caring for her completely to not having her at all. And so he picked her up and he carried her nestled against his chest. Like he always did, carried her through the house and laid her down. Nothing happened. He didn't need to change his shirt. Everything was fine. Everything was fine. Everything was fine. He knew better than I did. And he laid her down in it. And then the kids had this conversation about like, do we cover her face? Do we not cover her face? Like they just were sort of talking through what they wanted, you know? And, you know, we put some meaningful things in with her and then the kids put the, the casket lid on and they secured it again. They decided whether or not they wanted to be there when we covered her, that sort of thing. We let the dog sniffer and stuff. He'd, you know, he'd, uh, he'd been around all those days. Yeah. 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 And so we did all of that. And then the funeral director was outside. He'd never seen her at all. So he never saw her funeral director. Never. So, so we had to pay the funeral director. I think it was around $2,000 and he never laid eyes on her, never touched her, never laid eyes on her. Just, filed some paperwork and had to follow us to the cemetery. So carried her out of the house and she went into the back of my sister's van. My brother-in-law drove her. Um, My sister laid in the back with her on the way to the cemetery, which my sister Jenny talks about that as being a really profound experience for her of being able to do that. And then we brought her to this green burial area in a hybrid cemetery. So she's buried in a bluebird meadow lowered her into the ground. We filled in the the grave ourselves. Didn't plan on doing that, but there were shovels. And uh, once you started, it was just like, we're going to finish this. Yeah. There were, you know, grave diggers nearby with shovels. We could see them off to the, off in the distance a little bit. And um, somebody went and asked them if we could have their, the rest of their shovels. So we'd asked for a couple of shovels to be there just to sort of symbolically throw some dirt on. And then, yeah, once we started, we couldn't stop. And that, you know, the work of filling her grave in was when you think you've done your last act, you know, and suddenly there's one more thing you can do. And so, you know, filling Mm -hmm. it in was really helpful. At this point, was it mainly uh, her family and extended family? Yeah, we have, you know, we have a big circle of friends and I did not want... I didn't want a whole lot of people there and I just didn't have it in me to figure out who to invite and who not to invite and everything like that. So we just decided to sure. just be, you know, small, intimate. So just family. So we just, you know, we just sort of had our own, we created our own graveside service. The funeral director had to supervise because that's, you know, that's one of the requirements in New York state is that he like literally had to 
stand there at our funeral um, for Nora that like, we didn't need him for anything. You know, he was a nice guy, but we didn't need him there. And I just had to, he's just doing his job. He's just doing his job, but it did feel, it felt intrusive to have a stranger in that space until I could just kind of ignore him. (laughs) you know and he was just stand over there please yeah and he did you know he he I think that he got it as you know as much as he could yeah so she's buried in this beautiful bluebird meadow and you know we visit and we you know I compost things back and forth I take things from my garden and put it over there and you know put dead stuff from my garden onto her grave and take dead stuff from her grave and put it in my garden so that things are sort of growing back and forth with uh yeah, got a cycle, the, yeah. cycle of life going. Yeah, and so that's where our bird is, and she's surrounded by you know the sound of birds and their deer there, and it's really lovely, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So we carry on, you know. Yeah. When did Nora fly away? It was March sixteenth, two thousand sixteen. So we just passed the seven year mark. What a beautiful story. So heartfelt, so much tenderness and love surrounding Nora her whole life. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, she had just such a beautiful life and I feel like we were, um, we were really fortunate to know what we know about our, about our options. Whatever anyone wants to choose is fine, you know, but for people who want that, a more intimate connection with, dying and with death care, you know, or with their experiences of, you know, burial or cremation or any of the ways that we can connect more closely during those transition times. I think they're they're just opportunities for for continued connections and continued acts of love, even when it seems like things have ended. And it yeah. it definitely it definitely helped us to be more ready to let her go to have kept her at home. Thank you, Lauren, for sharing this story. Oh, thank you for giving me an opportunity to share it. You know, I mean, being able to share it in this way is just one more, it's one more act of love, right? Yes. A Path Home is a production of the National Home Funeral Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating and advocating for communities and families who choose to care for their own loved ones at death. Check out our website at homefuneralalliance.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend and subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to share your home funeral or natural burial experience on the podcast, please email me at podcast at homefuneralalliance.org. We'd love to hear from you. The music at the beginning and end of A Path Home is written and performed by Sarah Cruz. Our beautiful cover art is by Linda Carre. And until next time, remember the words of Ram Das: We are all walking each other home. I want to be Tend to your body, you'll tend to my soul. And if it happens the other way around, I know you're gently.